You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. How many are glad God will speak to us again? Didn't see that until just now, but it made me really excited about God. He's a good, good father. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little to you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And then some thousand years later, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph was like, what? Just happened. That's not what it says. That's my translation. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame because he knew something terrible has happened, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Everybody say fear. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet that we just read. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless this church. I pray that you would make preaching easy, and I pray that you would make hearing your word a delight to the soul. In your name, amen. We are celebrating the season of Advent. Today is the last day of Advent. And it's last Sunday of Advent, and we're celebrating God with us. We're celebrating the second coming while our culture is celebrating the first coming. So when you leave here, it's all about the baby Jesus. That's what Christmas is to our culture. I think Advent is the most countercultural of all the church seasons. The, The culture out there does not care about Lent. They let us have Easter. No one makes too much of a big of a deal about it. Ordinary time is ordinary time. But the way we celebrate Advent here is very different than the way the culture is celebrating Christmas out there. We're in here talking about the second coming of Jesus from, from midway through November, if you've been paying attention to the readings, until just now. All of the things that we've been preaching from have to do with the second coming of Jesus. This is the first time that the actual birth of Jesus comes into the picture. Why? Why? Because we have to know, and we have to continue to remind ourselves, that the baby in the manger is the one who's going to suffer and die, is the one who's going to be returning as a lion who looks like a lamb, who looks like he's been slain, but it turns out he was, and he's no longer slain. We have to know that. Why? 
because there are two extreme movements of Christianity going on right now, and both of them are very, very much causing problems. The first move is a Christianity that is all about the now. Everything is about getting as much as you can possibly get out of life now. God is going to heal every sickness now. He's going to raise every person now. He's going to bring you your best life. And in that, and because that is a horribly disappointing gospel, it sounds encouraging, but that has not worked out very well. There's another group that is only about the not yet. Nothing will ever be good until Jesus comes back. You will always be depressed until Jesus comes back. You'll always be afraid until Jesus comes back. You'll always be sick until Jesus comes back. And I think both of those left to themselves, the everything good will happen now and the nothing good will happen until Jesus comes back, are both very destructive gospels. I think, and I think you are all doing a spectacular job of the messy yet difficult work of living in a tension between the yes and the not yet. The fact that things are rough now, but we've all experienced the inbreaking of the future burst into your life. How many have ever heard God speak to them? How many can testify that you were once a sinner, but that you've been delivered from that? How many can testify that there was a season where you didn't have and then God provided? How many can testify that you don't deserve even what you have right now? How many can testify that you have felt the Holy Spirit land on your body and, and give you gifts and, and thoughts and dreams that you never would have had on your own? How many can say, I'm a better person now than I was 10 years ago? How many can say these things? It's because the kingdom of God is breaking and entering into our life. There is the not yet that is going to be full, but there is the now that it's kind of just dripping and breaking in. And so that's why we spend so much time early in the church year celebrating the second coming. Because we have to know that the good that is happening is good from the future breaking into the present. That's what faith is. Faith is laying hold of what is not yet and pulling it into the now. We have a baby in swaddling clothes lying in a manger only to be a man wrapped in a shroud and laid in a tomb. He's showing us what power looks like. Jesus in the manger, Jesus on the cross is not God denying his power. It's God showing us what flexing your muscles was always supposed to look like. Humility. Weakness. Not coercion. Not manipulation. A bruised reed he will not break. Jesus in the manger, Jesus on the cross is what God's power looks like. A baby being foretold to Ahaz, a baby being foretold to Joseph, reveals the slow method of God that we need to adopt in our lives. How am I going to deal with these two kings, Ahaz says? Somebody's going to have a baby. When? How that's at least going to take nine months, and then he's got to grow up if he's going to be good at fighting. And you could hear Isaiah say, oof, no, that's not how he's going to do it. He's going to be fought, but he's not going to fight. All right, Joseph, okay. The baby in Mary is going to save everybody from their sins. When? It's funny that God reveals himself in an agricultural climate. He didn't come now. He came then because nothing could happen fast then. 
And so it's not just the scriptures that testify to God. It's when he wrote the scriptures that testify to him. He lives an unhurried life. How many know God could have made the earth in one day? Everything in Genesis could have happened in one day. He decided to do it in seven because he wants you to know you don't have to hurry. He shows up as a baby because he wants you to know you don't have to hurry. Ahaz, there's two kings that are bearing down on you tomorrow. In 600 years, somebody's going to have a baby and deliver you from that. He's slow. We rush. We trip. We don't embrace moments. We don't chew slowly. God is slow. The baby from Isaiah actually was delivered. It was one of Isaiah's children. See, there's this complexity between was that prophecy for Ahaz or was it for us? And the answer is yes. A young woman, Isaiah's wife, did have a baby, and that baby did deliver Israel from two kings, but that is not the ultimate prophecy. See, prophecy has two parts. Prophecy has the now, and prophecy has the not yet. So Matthew wants us to know that what Joseph was just told is the same thing that Ahaz was told, but the question is, who are the two kings now? Rezin, King Rezin from Assyria and King Pekalah from Assyria are long gone by the time Jesus is born, but the kings of sin and death are existing. And those are the two kings that Jesus came to destroy. What you have in Ahaz and what you have in Joseph is the difference between fear and faith. Fear is our inability to wait. And our inability to wait is our inability or our fear to have to endure something because it's painful to endure something. Fear causes us not to, we don't want to wait. Fear makes us hurry up so that we don't have to endure. And when we don't endure, we don't have the ability to reveal God in the present brokenness. The number one mission of the church is to reveal God's presence in that which is broken. But to reveal it in that which is broken, we have to endure that which is broken. That's why Jesus says all through the book of Revelation, those who endure to the end. But fear makes us not want to endure because enduring is painful. Fear wants to remove pain at any cost, and so fear makes us hurry up so we don't have to endure. But hurrying up and not enduring, denying pain is denying reality, and you can't reveal God with us if you're denying reality. Fear is an emotion that causes us to clamp down and control. Ahaz, his name means he has grasped. Fear causes us to clamp down and control. We're going to unpack that in a second. Faith is a gift that causes us to make our plans, but let God. Man makes his plans, but. Man makes his plans, but. So can we all know scripture together? Man makes his plans, but God directs his path. Man makes his plans, but. Which means you make a plan and you don't immediately execute it. Notice, you don't immediately. We slow down. Ahaz, his name means to grasp, to be immediate, to hold on to, to not let go. Those sound like good things, but they're controlling things. They're manipulative things. What does Joseph mean? Joseph means he has added. Joseph means he has added. 
In other words, Joseph is realizing in this story, there's what I know, but then God is going to add things and add categories that I never knew. Fear doesn't let that be an option. We're going to explain this right now. We have to look at Ahaz and Joseph to see how to move from fear to faith as we live in between the now and the not yet. Fear is a paralyzing way to live. Fear makes you do things impulsively. Fear is why we only promote our good and do our best to hide our bad with ourselves and then the opposite with others. It's why we always promote their bad and have a lot of trouble talking about their good because we're afraid. We're afraid of embarrassment. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of thinking I might not get the promise. We're afraid of feeling like I might lose what I have. And so we build a world. We build a castle around ourselves. And we don't realize that the leading cause of impulsivity is not your ego. It's not pride. It's unchecked fear. Unnamed fear. Unconfessed fear. Makes us immediate you just think about it. If you startle somebody, just in the natural, if you startle somebody, you can get, if you think, I have a daughter, she throws stuff at me all of the time. There are times where I think something was thrown at me and it wasn't, and I just do this for no reason because I saw her move. It's amazing how quickly you can get your hand in front of your face to block something because fear makes you do things immediately. Immediately. As leaders in our lives, husbands, wives, employees, employers, people who are responsible for other people on any level, fear will beget fear. Look what it says about King Herod. When King Herod realizes that Jesus is born, it says this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem didn't know what Herod knew. It was like, it's not like it was on Fox News. It wasn't being tweeted. He didn't know. Nobody knew very fast. But when the king is troubled, everyone who the king is responsible for is troubled. When mom and dad are troubled, the kids are going to be troubled. When the boss is troubled, the employees are going to be troubled. When the pastor's troubled, the church is going to be troubled. When you lead in any area of your life, how you are is how others will be. That's why when Adam sinned, God didn't say, what did you do? He said, where are you? When Cain was sinning, he didn't say, what did you do? He said, why has your countenance fallen? Do you see that? God cares more about where Adam is than what he's done. He cares more about how Cain is than what he's done. Because we've grown up in a Christian culture that tells us that end results are how we bring peace to people's life. But how we're pursuing results is how we bring peace to people's lives. You could get results but be anxious and manipulative and micromanagey and controlling and all kinds of things. And you could get to the end of the year and have the best year ever and you ran over people's lives to get there. 
You spent no time with your family to get there. You gave the people you love leftovers because your goals were getting your first overs and everyone else got leftovers. And yay, dad reached his goals, but he wasn't home ever. How you are matters more than anything else. If we're living in fear and to be grossly simple, don't nitpick. I'll be mad at you at the door. To be general, fear starts. I'm not talking about clinical anxiety. I'm talking about fear. Fear starts when you're pursuing something that you can't lose or live without, and it's not Jesus. That's it. Fear starts when you're pursuing something that you can't live without or can't lose. See, when you're pursuing something you can't live without, it's going to cause fear. When you receive something that you can't live without, and now you're trying to keep something you can't live without, that's going to produce fear because you will always become enslaved to the thing that you can't live without. We should be slaves to Jesus. That's what Paul says. Because we should be pursuing him saying, I can't live without you. I can live without everything else. But I can't live without you. So I'm enslaved to you. See, we have this, as Pentecostals, we love to look at a bad past and talk about how God's going to make it good. We say your past won't define you. Your past isn't going to dictate your tomorrow. But Paul does something funny in, I believe it's Galatians, where he talks about his past successes. And when he lists them all, he says, I count my good past as rubbish because I have found someone worth living for. It's not just my bad past gets better. It's that my good past seems like nothing compared to my right now with the one I can't live without. We spend so much time trying to reverse engineer our past. Jesus being our now makes the good rubbish and the bad look good anyway. That was free. That's not in my notes. That was just like a thing. Introduction over. Fear and faith. Ahaz is told by God, ask me for a sign. No, I'm not going to ask you for a sign. Later on in the Gospels, the Pharisees ask him for a sign. He says, no, I'm not going to give you a sign. Be, uh, removing bipolar as an option for why God would do something like this is very confusing. Isaiah, ask, uh, Ahaz, ask me for a sign. No. Pharisees are like, you know what? If he's saying he's God, let's ask him for a sign. God, can we get a sign? No. Don't understand anything that's happening right now at all. I don't get it. Let's talk about this. Fear instantly resolves. Faith patiently waits. Ahaz knew before he even started the conversation that he wanted to make an alliance with Assyria so that he could defeat the two kings. And so God says, I don't think you should do that. 
He says, well, what am I supposed to do? And God says, and then the lectionary picks up and God says, ask me for a sign. He doesn't ask him for a sign. Because when you're afraid and you've already resolved in your head how something is supposed to go, you don't want to, if God asks you for a sign, you know the sign's going to be something that you've already resolved you don't want. So no, I'm not going to ask you for one. But then the Pharisees are afraid because they've already determined 2,000 years later who God's supposed to be, and Jesus isn't that, so now they want to ask him for a sign for the same opposite reason that Ahaz didn't want a sign, and it's, I've already made up my mind, and you're not going to change it. Because fear is afraid to change its mind because it always grabs what's most immediate and what makes the most sense, and nothing else is ever an option. Got that? (laughs) It's when we, and you hear this phrase so much now, well, I did a lot of research, and you should be feeding your baby this. You know what's funny about research? There's enough out there for everybody to be right. So you'll do research until you find a source that's already confirmed the impulse you had when you didn't even start researching yet. I know what I want to do for a job, and I'm going to ask every one of my friends if they think I should until one of them gives me the answer I want to hear, and then I'll say, see, it was confirmed by the mouth of two witnesses, so it must be God. No. Nope. Not how it works, but that's what fear does. Fear does that. Joseph made up his mind to divorce Mary. And cut the guy some slack. At the moment he saw that baby bump and hadn't slept with her, there is only one legitimate possibility. This child is either mine or it's someone else's. And I know it wasn't mine because I dated the right way. (laughs) You know, you're really supposed to wait until you get married though, right? Somebody who knows can clap for that. (laughs) Marriage is the only thing strong enough to handle the weight and responsibility of sex. Let me just put that out there and we'll move on. So Joseph knows. (laughs) Joseph knows the second time sex came up. Who knows what the Holy Spirit is up to in the service? Joseph knows she slept around. And then he does this. But I'm going to be a just man, and I'm not going to stone her. I'm just going to divorce her, and people will just find out. I'm not going to be the one to publicly shame her. And here's the funny thing about fear. Fear, we will always hide bad decisions with some sense of piety so that we don't feel bad about making it. I could put her out in front of everybody and see Mary slept around, but I'm going to do the just thing. I'm going to do the right thing. It's not wrong that I'm divorcing her. Look how right I'm being. Ahaz, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. I already know that verse. God is asking me for a sign. I'm not going to ask him for one. I'm going to do the pious thing. And Joseph and Ahaz are both wrong. It doesn't matter how good you make your wrong look. We were just talking about this in my office today. It's like when you spray, like, orange scent in a bathroom after you blew it up. The problem is the orange scent doesn't make the bathroom smell any better. The blowing up of the bathroom makes the orange scent smell bad now. Now, every time you smell oranges, all you think about is that bathroom. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. Right, Mike? You know. I don't know why. Just, there you are. You're never here. Like, spray orange scent all over your sin. Your sin is just going to make the orange scent stink. It's not going to make it look any better. That's what I'm trying to say. 
What does God do? God tells Joseph, you're insistent, hear me, hear me, you're insistent that there's only two categories. It's your baby or it's somebody else's. But if you're willing to hear, I'm going to introduce to you a third category that no reason and no science or anything else can explain. And you're either just going to believe me or you're not. But the baby isn't from anybody that you've ever seen or knows that exists. It's from me. Now, God had to tell him that because if Mary told him that, Oh. It said that he resolved to divorce her. And then it says, but while he pondered, fear instantly resolves. Faith patiently waits. He made a decision, but waited a little longer to execute it. And in the waiting, God gave him a revelation. So, it's good to resolve to make a plan. It's not good to immediately execute it without prayer. But it's also not good to never resolve to make a plan and just wait on God. That's called spiritual laziness. I'm just waiting on the Lord. You're spraying scent on sin. You're just too lazy to make a plan. Man makes his plans. That's not wrong. Then God directs the plans. He doesn't direct your nothing. He directs your plans. Make a decision and submit the decision to him. Don't sit around on your spiritual couch and get spiritually fat just waiting for God to give you direction. Make a decision and say, what do you think about the decision? That's what he's looking for. And if you submit that decision to him and it's the best you could do and you don't get a revelation right away, then do what you thought and trust that God's mercy is going to be there for you. He doesn't want us living in analysis paralysis where we can never be happy because we always think we might be wrong. Do your best to make a decision. Wait on him. If he doesn't say anything, he's saying, go ahead. In this case, thank God, he jumped in. Faith instantly resolves. Fear instantly resolves. Faith patiently waits. Fear grabs the immediate. Faith holds on to the possible. Fear will always do the first thing it sees. So when you're living in a state of fear, you're often not rolling through possibilities. You're just going to do the the first thing that you see is what you're going to do. And what happens is we get to what I call a cliff moment. And this is going to sound kind of funny because we've all been here, but it's actually quite tragic. Have you ever had restraint? Like, you know there's a line like in a fight with somebody, right, Jacqueline? We'll just, in a fight with somebody, when you're arguing back and forth and you're, you're still within the code of conduct of the argument. Like, there's rules that are okay when you're fighting with somebody. And then there's that moment where you say, if I say this next thing, I've now stepped out of the realm of being on solid footing, and I've gone into the realm of what we call digging yourself a hole. And so you start shoveling, and then you realize the hole is now as high as your head. You're now six feet under. So what do you do? Now you just go in, because you're already in the hole. So you think that now that it's just already bad, so now I'm going to say all the stuff And we think that it doesn't matter because I've already said such bad things that I can't say anything worse. So now I'm just going to go all the way in. But we do it with food. So many of us right now are saying, you know what, in January I'm going to start eating well. So that means for the rest of this month I'm going to try to have a heart attack. 
I'm going, to mi- I'm going to commit suicide with food for the rest of December because I'm going to start walking for 30 minutes a day in January. Because I'm going to commit to working out for 15 days in 2020. Faith holds possibilities. I could say this. Or I could say this. Or I could make this decision. Or I could make that decision. And it holds the possibilities, and it also holds out for a possibility it hasn't thought of yet. We live in such a social media culture, and here's something that has physically changed in our brains. Every Sunday I get up here to speak, I'm held accountable by your face and by your reaction. When I'm thinking about what I want to say, especially when we step into those really tense moments where we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, social justice or we're going to be talking about politics and I'm going to be making those, those statements that I make once in a while. I'm thinking about you. I'm held accountable to your face. I'm held accountable to your actions. I'm sitting here looking at people I've sat with in my office where all of you are of different political affiliations, different races, different genders. You're going all through different things. And I have to think of something that I can say that can be okay in a room that has so much difference in it. But I'm held accountable to your face. Social media has made it so that we could say the deepest, most complicated things and not be held accountable by anybody's face. And so we've deluded ourselves into thinking that because it's a really good thing to say, I can say it because I'm not immediately held accountable to it. So now we have more socially awkward people in the world than we've ever had before, people who don't know how to interact because all of our interaction is done without the accountability of facial expression. I know when I say something stupid here, just so you all know, you don't have to tell me. I can tell. I know when I say something right that you think is stupid, and I laugh to myself because you didn't realize it was right, and hopefully Jesus tells you it was one day. I know these things. These things happen. But we get to the point where we think that everything is okay because we're now used to using our thumbs and not our mouth to communicate. And that incubates fear because we're afraid to say something, we're also afraid not to say something. Have you ever wanted to confront somebody and you kid yourself into like, and you know you shouldn't, but you say, you know, if I don't, I'll be enabling them. So now I'm going to go in and say all the things because I don't want to enable them. Like we are afraid to say something. We're afraid not to say something. And because fear's driving it, social media says you could say something and have no accountability. So it satisfies both fears. I can say it but I don't have to worry about reaction. I'll just see like a thumb up or a thumb down. Ooh, got me. You unfollowed me. Ooh. Care. I'm going to unfollow him. I don't care. Nobody cares. Some people care. I don't care. And then the final one. Fear refuses to learn. Faith is always willing to explore. Fear sees advice as a threat. Fear sees difference or change as a threat. Not, 
I'm not going to like that very much. Oh, the church is going to start doing this. I don't think I like that very much. It's never the middle ground anymore. It is either I am so in, hashtag all in, or I'm leaving. Like, disagreement used to equal fight. Now disagreement equals divorce. Because disagreement is now seen as rejection, not just something annoying. We're afraid of change. We're afraid of something new. Faith is willing to explore. Faith is willing to say, there's things that I like, but there might be something else out there. If God is infinite, he might have something better than pizza. Haven't seen it yet. Be willing if I did to try it. So far, no dice on that one, but it's possible. Fear says that one change means everything has changed. Just let it sit. You got a whole lattice in your life. And in one area of your life, one thing changes. And fear says my whole life is different now. That part of it is. Your whole life may not even feel the aftershock of that change. Your life over here might not ever know about this. But we treat, when you're afraid, one bad comment from one person. If I'm, if I'm living in fear, and there's times where there's insecurity and fear, one person saying, hey, pastor, I disagreed with that, feels like the whole church standing up together and saying, we disagree with everything you are and do and think as a human man. <laughs> and my wife is always like, yo, just chill out, man. Like, just, you're crazy, Bill. Just ch- chill, chill for a second. I'm like, can you believe this person? Everybody's thinking this. And she's like, it was one person we knew before we even started that they would be thinking that. I'm like, good point, hon. Let's move on. (laughs) Joseph allows, like we said, for a new category to exist. Notice that God, and here's where I I want this to, I want to shift here. Notice the angel doesn't come to Joseph and say, Joseph, don't be jealous that she didn't cheat on you. Don't be envious. Joseph, don't worry about her faithfulness. Joseph, don't worry about vengeance. Notice he says, don't be afraid. That's deep that the angel would come and say, don't be afraid. And I read and read and read and read and was like, why Besides the obvious, like, oh, maybe he was afraid that people would ostracize them. That's not enough. That's true, but that's probably not enough. And then, uh, theologian, if you, don't, if you just want to get a book from him, do it. His name's Stanley Harawas. Fantastic. He said, here's why Joseph was afraid. Because Joseph knew, if that baby came from God and not me, then there will be no way I can protect it or control it. I will have to watch. I will have to always wonder. I will never be able to influence because it's from God. Now, I wouldn't have understand that if I didn't already have a quote from years ago from a book that Tim Keller wrote called The Reason for God. And Tim Keller said this. He said, 
a congregant of mine came to me and said, I'm afraid of grace. He said, how could you be afraid of grace? And she said, because if there's nothing that God won't give to me, then that means there's nothing he can't ask of me. If he'll give me everything, then that means he can ask me to do anything. And I'm afraid of grace. If this baby is really from the creator himself, how am I going to, what, what am I going to parent? You know, don't run. Like, you tell him he's yours. Like, imagine the dynamic. Like, my wife is always like, whenever she uses the phrase, your daughter, I know I've, gone, I've done something wrong somewhere. Your daughter is up again. My daughter, like, imagine, imagine the times. Men, imagine how often Joseph wanted to be like, Mary's like, your son, uh-uh. <laughs> nope. <laughs> He's terrified. How do I love God's child? How do I teach God's child? How do I protect God's child? He realizes he won't be able to do any of those things. Now, we praise Mary every Good Friday because at the cross, she didn't say anything. I just know my mom. There is no way. My mom would have, she would have been redacted from the scriptures if I was Jesus. Way before anything on Good Friday happened. She'd have killed Judas. Way before Satan even entered him. She'd have slapped Peter the minute he denied. She would have broke Thomas down with her words the minute he died. Like, there would never have been able to be great scriptures because my mom would have been, like, constantly. Mary sits there when her baby is hanging on a cross naked and doesn't say anything. Her silence is the loudest part of her life. But that's the second time Mary lost Jesus. The first time Mary lost Jesus, she loses him in the temple. Let's call it Manhattan. She brings Jesus to Manhattan. She leaves Manhattan, gets on the train, says hi to Paul Hansen, who works for Metro North, gets to Poughkeepsie, goes home. This movie's called Home Alone, by the way. Gets home and says, Kevin! She didn't even know she left him. She gets back to Manhattan, finds him in St. Patrick's Cathedral, and has the nerve to say to Jesus, why did you do this to me? Mom, I'm 12. I've been waiting for you for three days. You forgot about me. Why did I do this to you? Mary is totally unreasonable in that moment. She's wrong. Why'd you do this to us? I didn't do anything to you. You didn't even know I wasn't there. You know who's quiet in that story? Joseph. As the leader goes, so goes everyone else. 
Joseph had this revelation that this isn't our kid and stays quiet the first time Jesus is a, he stays quiet the first time Jesus is lost for three days. The next time, it looks like he's going to be lost. Mary stays quiet and says, I wonder if we'll find him again in three days. And this time, she didn't find him in the temple. She found him as the temple. But I wonder if it was Joseph's silence that taught her the next time this happens, you don't have to let your emotions get the best of you. Fear turns to faith in Joseph, and fear turns to faith in Mary. Not controlling. So how? How does this happen? How do we get from fear to faith? The answer is only revelation. You can't will your fear away. It has to be a revelation. So the next question is, okay, well, how do we get that revelation? Listen to this, these, these few verses here, and then we'll close. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then, later on, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a... He withdrew to the district of Galilee. Joseph is afraid four times. And four times God comes and says, do not be afraid. But how does God tell him? Which means that rest is what creates the space for revelation which is what removes fear and turns it into faith. Only revelation can make fear go to faith, but only resting and waiting can create the space for revelation. We immediately do. Immediately don't next time. I immediately did. Immediately don't. Make your plan. Sometimes you'll have 30 seconds. Sometimes you'll have a day. Sometimes you'll have a month. Sometimes it'll be longer, but wait. For whatever amount of time the situation allows, in that space of waiting, there's going to be revelation. And that is what's going to slowly start to turn the fear into faith. Elder Paul got up here and said, anxiety will steal your joy. Slowing down, pausing, will give space for your joy to steal your anxiety. Let's stand to our feet this morning. This seems to be, this seems to be the season for songs and lyrics. I destroyed last Christmas for everybody a couple weeks ago. I uh, exalted Maroon 5 last week. I came, in, I came in today. I came in today, and Stephanie had a new song, and she was rehearsing it. And when I heard her, I, walk, I walked into the door. I'm in the foyer. I'm walking to my office. I'm halfway down the hall, and I hear this song. And I come back in, and I say, when are you doing that song? You guys can come up here. 
when are you doing that song, Steph? It's going to be the third song in the worship set. I said, no, it's not anymore. It's going to be at the end. I don't want everybody to come to the table right away. I want you to listen to this song. Let's close our eyes. If you're here and fear is a part of your life, it just wreaks havoc on you. It tells you what to do. It causes you to be impulsive. It causes you to be defensive. It causes you to be offensive or offensive. If it keeps you up at night, if you have to lie to yourself day after day, minute after minute, if it's been something that has been such a part of your life that it feels like, a, it feels like another person in your life, I want this song to just be like the Holy Spirit's words over you. I'm not going to make a big to-do. If you, if you want to come to the altar while the song is being sung, like if, if you're really in that place and you, and you want to come to the altar and just move out of your seat and, and just stand open before God, like I, I absolutely invite you to do that. I think that's great. Uh, I think we should not lose what it means to come to an altar. If, if, you, if that's something that if fear is just a part of your life, I grew up with paralyzing fear. I could tell story after story after story, and fear eventually turned into agitation when I got older, and agitation turned into anger, and anger turned into being very defensive and falling in love with being good at arguing, and I've done so much damage to so many people in my life. If you're here and you're just like, I, I am heading towards fear just utterly running my life, when this song starts... I just, I, I, want you, I want you to come to the altar and listen to the song. I want you to kneel at the altar or lift your hands at the altar or move to this space that God has called the church to move to for thousands of years. Don't be afraid when we start singing to come to the altar. We're better than Planet Fitness. This is a judgment-free zone. <laughs> we'll be... This is a judgment-free zone. Listen, I'm going to be at the altar because fear is something that I'm walking through. God has been walking me through this faithfully, and I'm enjoying the walk out of it. But I'm going to be here. If fear is a part of your life, fear of failure, fear of your own personality, fear of your own awkwardness, fear of your children, fear of death, whatever it is, when she sings this song, when Stephanie starts to sing, come to the altar and let the Spirit minister to you. We have deacons, we have elders who will come pray with you. Let's just have a moment. Let's just forget about what time it is. Let's have a moment here for the Spirit to, to soothe the space. We're going to give him that Joseph space. If, you wanna, if you've been living like Ahaz and you want to start living like Joseph, come to the front as Stephanie begins to sing. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.